Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in week two of a series that we've called Fully Alive. And as I mentioned last week, uh, the title comes from a quote that I heard during a seminary lecture many, many moons ago, Calvin Theological Seminary. The class was about what it means to follow Jesus. And the professor, about midway through the class, shared a quote from a second century Christian saint by the name of Saint Irenaeus. Here's what he said. He said, the glory of God is man, and it was the second century, so man there means man or woman. The glory of God is human being fully alive. And I also said last week that there's an understanding that falls out of this thought that the professor brought to our attention that has, I've carried with me for years, and it goes like this. Um, what if what God ultimately wants for your life is the same thing you ultimately want for your life? What if what God ultimately wants for your life, the reason he created you, is the same thing that you ultimately want for your life? And I remember sitting there thinking, I would love that to be true, but it just strikes me as odd. And when I thought, why does it strike me as odd? I thought, well, I think it's because of something I sort of picked up along the way as I was growing up in a religious environment. Because somewhere along the line, it was never taught to me, but I think I just sort of caught it. I came to think of God as a police officer in the sky. Am I the only one, right? Uh, he's watching, he's waiting, and he's ready. Because anytime I break one of his laws, he's going to pull me over and give me a citation. A and he would pull me over and give me a citation for, for doing something that I kind of really wanted to do. And so the idea of God as a cosmic police officer is, is more where I think a lot of us go naturally, but... But, and this may surprise you, Jesus doesn't describe God that way. If you said, well, how does Jesus want his followers to think about God? I would say, well, Jesus over and over and over again points to God as a heavenly father who loves his children. And just like imperfect parents want the best for their children, ultimately, your perfect heavenly father wants what's best for you as well. He hates it when we sin, not so much because it breaks his law, but because it breaks his heart and it hurts his kids. In fact, one of the reasons he sent Jesus among us as one of us was to show us what it looks like to be fully alive. Certainly Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, but before he died, he lived around 30 years, during which he modeled a lifestyle, a new way to be human, and then he invites you and me to follow. Jesus talks about his mission as sort of unveiling what it looks like to be fully alive one day to his first followers. John, who was there, recorded Jesus' words for us. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I have come that they, speaking of people, may have life and have it to the full, full color, full tilt, life, everything God had in mind when he created them. That's why I don't think it's a stretch to say that what you ultimately want for you is the same thing your heavenly father ultimately wants for you. And so in this five-week series, which leads us up to Easter, what we're doing is, is we're looking at five different things that rob potential from our lives. Five things that we would be better if we dealt with them differently than what comes naturally. So each week we're looking at a different one of these robbers of potential. And then we're going to talk about each week what to do if you realize that this is one 
way that you are keeping yourself from being fully alive, that your thoughts, your habits, your patterns, and your choices are keeping you from being everything God created you to be. So for today, uh, we get to talk about fear. And I want to begin uh, by noting something that we can all agree on. Fear is something we wish we had less of in our lives. According to our friends at dictionary.com, sorry, Rand McNally, right? Here's, Here's a definition of fear to get us going. Fear is a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, or pain. And this is key. Whether the threat is real or imagined. So something's coming or something's happening or we imagine something's coming or we imagine something's happening and this emotion rises, we sense there's danger, we sense there's evil, we sense there's pain and we become afraid. And and fear in life comes in many flavors like Baskin Robbins ice cream, right? And it takes life from us wherever it strikes. I, I made a list this week. I was thinking about, you know, recent examples. As a pastor, I meet with people a lot of times who are dealing with different areas of life where fear tends to rise. Here's just a few that came about recently. I met with a parent who had lost their job. And, and they described this, we're not sure how we're going to pay the bills. We're not sure we're gonna, how we're going to make the ends meet. And the dad was sitting there and he, he, he said, I'm sitting at my kitchen counter and I'm looking at my children and they're all looking at me and they don't know what I'm thinking, but I'm just thinking, I don't know how we're going to make it through this storm. Financially, how are we going to make it? It's a fear that naturally arises. I I think of a teenager who was confronted with the potential of an unwanted pregnancy. And as tears filled her eyes, she says, you know, I I don't know what this means for my dreams. I don't know what this means for my hopes in life. Suddenly what was clear for me is is maybe not so clear. And it's a real fear. I think of a college student who I met with recently who had planned to go on to graduate school. And they had done all the things that you're supposed to do if you want to go to graduate school. And they filled out the applications to graduate school, the recommendation letters, and now all the testing And then one day a letter comes from the graduate school of choice and they open it up and it begins, you know, with the words, we regret to inform you. And suddenly like the room starts to spin because all of a sudden I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be in life anymore. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I won't find my path. I'm afraid I won't find my future. I think of another couple that I met with recently that that was struggling to get pregnant. And then when they get pregnant, they were struggling to stay pregnant. And as they sat with me, it's like, we've run this track so many times. If we're honest, we're faced with a real fear that we might navigate this life without any biological children. And we just have to, we just have to process that. And, and, and it's, 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 it's a fear. And finally, I think of a father who recently during a routine physical learned something that would send his life in a dramatically different direction. And he said to me, I sat in the car after I got the news and I gripped the steering wheel and I had a tear start running down my cheek. And I just thought, Am I going to be around to see my kids graduate high school? I mean, it, it, it's a real fear because a real twist happened in the story of their lives. And, and fear naturally surfaces in all sorts of actual unwelcomed life situations. But as we noted in the definition, uh, fear can also surface when that threat to our health or our well-being is imagined. And I would argue in these situations, it can be no less crippling. Have you ever had that when you're lying in bed at night at two in the morning, looking up at the ceiling and and your mind is filled with things that are endlessly terrifying, you start running these what if scenarios 
And the what if scenarios are always the worst possible option. And maybe it's just me, right? Um, but, but, but that's why, like, even if we imagine these threats, they impact our lives in real ways. Fear has the power and potential not only to lie to us, but to steal our joy and to keep us from being fully alive. So that said, it shouldn't surprise us whatsoever that Jesus' favorite command, if you said, what does Jesus command his followers more than anything else? It's three words. Do not fear. Because I'm bored, I counted 59 times. Jesus says, do not fear or do not be afraid in the gospels in those first accounts of his life. Then I went on to count 100, okay, I just Googled it, come on. Uh, 122 times the New Testament letters, Paul and those other followers, Jesus who wrote the letters. And then the Old Testament, 131 times. Do not fear. And, and I read this and I think, okay, the Bible, obviously this is a big, big deal. And it's a big deal to God and it's a big deal to these early Christians. It should be a big deal to us. But I got a question and maybe some of you have already caught it. Like, is it even possible to command somebody, do not fear? Like, I, I command my kids, do not eat more ice cream, right? Like, thus saith the dad, or whatever, right? I mean, that, that is something you can command, but like, can you command somebody not to fear? I, I don't feel like I choose to fear. I feel like fear chooses me. And, and, and so, how in the world can that be something that you can command? Nonetheless, Jesus seems to believe that there is an accessible antidote to fear, at least for people of faith. And what I want to do today is chase down an answer to this question. How is it possible to move beyond fear? Because we know it's no good for us. And if there's a way, I want to know what that way is. So what I want to do with our time is look at three different stories from the life of Jesus. They're all recorded by a follower named Matthew who would have been eyewitness to these uh, events. And in each of these, I'm going to suggest that Jesus actually reveals the antidote to fear. So Jesus comes to earth and he calls 12 disciples to follow after him, to learn from him and to learn to see the world as he does. The lesson number one for them in many cases was this idea of fear. And so it's a theme that Jesus returns to over and over and over again. So uh, without further ado, in the first scene, Jesus calls his followers together. They've been with him for quite a while. And he basically gives them the worst locker room talk in history. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with locker room talks. I'm not really because I was never an athlete. I know, shock, right? <laughs> I was a mathlete, so we didn't have locker room talks. But, but I, I've seen movies where there's locker room talks and the coach gets up and sort of, you know, talks to him about this is where we're at. This is what we need to do going forward. So Jesus, again, about halfway through his time with his disciples, gives a terrible locker room pep talk. They've been watching him. They've been learning from him. They've been listening to him. And Jesus reaches a spot where he calls his guys together and he goes, okay, it's time to take this message further faster. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pair you up and I'm going to send you out. You're going to teach what I've been teaching. You're going to get to do some of the things I've been doing. But here's the thing. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Okay. Now I brought a visual aid. In a cage match, one of these critters has a bit of an advantage, would you agree, right? Like you want to be the wolf. So if I'm sitting there and Jesus is like, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I'm like, time out. Can you send us out as wolves among sheep? 
right? I mean, Jesus, this is really, really a bad strategy. Um, are, are, do you understand what you're saying? And Jesus would say, oh yeah, because then he continues and he goes, yeah, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten. It's going to be awful. Like I said, terrible locker room pep talk, right? But then after telling them about this horrific future that awaits them, he says this, and this is just awesome. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And it's like, if I'm there, I'm like, time out, Jesus. Okay, maybe you don't understand fear because you're Jesus and you know, you got something going on. That's fine. Uh, the, the thing that most makes us afraid is things that will kill us. And you just said, we're sheep, they're wolves, beaten and arrested, okay? So this is the very sort of thing that we would tend to be afraid of. So do not be afraid. That sounds nice, not possible. And by the way, P.S., you did it again. What do you mean cannot kill the soul? Like, can you give us a bit more? And he does as he continues. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And some of you just thought of Monty Python. Sinners, right? Yeah. Uh, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He says, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of, and here's the first clue about how we antidote, or the antidote for fear, your father's care. Here it is again. Jesus talks about God as a heavenly father who cares for creation, including sparrows, which had no value in the ancient world. He says, your heavenly father, this is his world. He's in control. He's even in control of things that nobody cares about. And as he continues, he gives them an interesting detail. He says, and, it's not only the sparrow thing, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And friends, what this means is that God cares for you. And what this means is there may actually be an angel in heaven assigned to monitor hair count. Okay? For you. And Randy and I got notification this week because of a decreasing population size. <laughs> We, are, we have one angel in charge of both of us now, as far as hair. So I thought that was good. Yeah, I did not tell him I was doing that joke, but I was very proud of it. Thank you. Okay, so he says, therefore, so God cares about the things that nobody cares about. He cares about you. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I'm not sure that they needed that part, but yeah, you don't, don't worry. God has it all under control. But just notice something with me. Jesus is not saying to his first followers that there's nothing to be afraid of. We, we know that, right? Life is full of things for us to be afraid of. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, or better suggesting that there's actually a way to not be afraid, even in situations where there is something to be afraid of. And if that's the case, that would actually make a big difference in my life and yours. So that was scene number one. Uh, now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus told his followers not to be afraid. Matthew records uh, two chapters earlier, uh, a conversation that set the stage for the second conversation about the sheep and the wolves. And it's a famous story, and it's set on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I brought a picture of the Sea of Galilee. This is taken from Mount Arbel, um, which is, uh, if you want to go there with me in October 2020, we will climb this mountain. Or if you don't like to climb, there's a bus route. No worries. But yeah, you can kind of see this is the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And I show you this picture for a number of reasons, uh, including that many people, when they think of the Sea of Galilee, they think like Lake Michigan, like you really can't see across it. But the Sea of Galilee, uh, it's a big lake, but it's a lake. It's about 13 miles long and eight miles wide. 
at its widest point. And as we enter the story, Jesus is in a town called Capernaum, which is where he sort of had home base and he's been teaching and he's been healing and the crowds have been growing larger and larger. And eventually it's time for Jesus to, to be done for the day. Uh, but he always had trouble exiting because there were always more people in need. And so Jesus, as was his habit, gets into a boat and sets out on the waters. I think that may be actually why he did a lot of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee because he always had a way to, to get away. So here's what Matthew tells us happened that day. Then he says, Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Matthew wants us to understand two things. Number one, the storm was unexpected. And number two, the storm was significant. And, and we read this halfway around the world and we think, storm, I mean, guys, you got to watch the clouds, right? I mean, if the lake isn't that big, how in the world did you get caught in a dangerous storm? It has to do with the geography of that region. There's actually a ridge of mountains called the Golan Heights that run along one side of the Sea of Galilee. And when cold air comes over the mountains, it crashes down towards the Sea of Galilee, displaces warm air, and you can be in a dangerous storm without any warning at all. It was true then, and it's true today. Uh, moreover, the boats that Jesus had in the first century were not like the boats that we have today. In fact, I was in a furious storm on the Sea of Galilee when I was there a couple times ago, and it got so dangerous, I went back to see the captain to see if he was concerned. And he was this Jewish guy who likes to take Christian tourists out on the Sea of Galilee while playing the song Oceans. Everybody likes oceans, right? Yeah. So we're driving out there, and I, I said, hey, are we going to be okay? And he looks back at me and smiles awkwardly, and he goes, just like Jesus. <laughs> I did not feel better, okay? So we're on the Sea of Galilee and the boat that we were in was large enough that it had a DJ and a dance floor, okay? And I was concerned. So in the first century, the boat that they would have been in would have looked something like, well, this. This is the, the skeleton of one. Um, this is the, they call it the Jesus boat. It's a lovely tourist attraction, again, on the Sea of Galilee. And this would have been like the boat that Jesus would have been in in the first century. It's 26 feet long and seven feet wide. It would have had a crew of five, four people on the oars, two on each side, one manning the sail. Uh, but you imagine in a boat like this that's full of people and there's waves crashing over because the storm is getting so severe that it would have been absolutely terrifying. Again, Matthew tells us water is crashing over the bow of the boat. And I know what you're thinking, where in the world is Jesus, right? Well, Matthew actually tells us, remember he's in the boat. Check out what Jesus is doing. This is great. But Jesus was sleeping. All right. Now, <clears throat> Matthew thinks Jesus was sleeping. I do not think Jesus was sleeping. Let me tell you why. The size of the boat, number one, and number two, my experience as a parent. Let me explain. Imagine with me, totally hypothetically, there is a significant basketball game on today around three o'clock, let's say. Okay. And let's just imagine I am on my couch watching the game, reflecting on the glories of life and watching Michigan hopefully win. Okay, there we go. Said it. Now, or Michigan State whatever your thing. Okay. And I'm watching. And all of a sudden in the basement, I hear where my boys are playing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, you've experienced this as a parent, right? Uh, somebody has hit somebody and somebody has screaming and there's a problem. And all of a sudden I hear steps coming up and maybe just maybe imagine that I'm thinking I need to train them to work this out on their own. And so I just close my eyes. <laughs> right? And so they come racing in, screaming and crying. And there's this moment where they stop and they all go, shh, dad, 
sleeping. <laughs> and in that moment, and I'm sure I'm the only one that's ever done this, right? What are you thinking to yourself? Victory, right? <laughs> right. And then they go find mom. Yeah, that's how that goes. So, yeah. So I, Matthew said Jesus is sleeping. He probably was sleeping. I think he might not have been because he wanted to teach him something, but whatever. Uh, but he, this is where this story really connects with you and me. Because maybe you've had a season like this, or maybe you have a friend who's had a season like this, but have you ever had a season in life where you were in crisis and you were calling out to God and it just seemed like he wasn't paying attention? Like if Jesus is up there and he's watching and he cares and he doesn't move in when and how you're asking him to, there's a sense like, okay, God, if you can't move in in this situation, I'm just pushing pause on my faith. I'm, I, I got to get away from this because it just seems like you don't, it seems like you don't care. And over the years, I've, I've met with people who have this as part of their story. And whenever I do, I point them back to this moment. I said, because Jesus' first followers, I mean, they didn't even think Jesus was sleeping in their dangerous situation. They looked over and he was actually sleeping, right? I mean, there was no fuzziness. So you're not the first to experience this. This has actually been a part of people's journey of faith for thousands and thousands of years. And, and so the disciples are in the boat and the waves are crashing over the boat and Jesus is sleeping, but at least he's in the boat. And so they go and they wake him up. And well, Matthew tells us, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. And this wouldn't have been like a, oh, Jesus, hey, are you sleeping? Little, you know, it's like, no, we're in trouble here. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, and this is awesome. Again, they're in training. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? And in my mind, I'm, I, I, if I put myself in the boat, I'm looking over and Peter is standing up saying, why aren't we afraid? Jesus, I grew up on this lake. I've had friends drowned in this lake in storms that looked and felt a lot like this. So sorry, what in the world are you talking about? Why are we afraid? Violent storm, big waves, dangerous water. And what do you mean you have little faith? What does faith have to do with us surviving this storm? And then Jesus does something they weren't expecting. And Jesus got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. And we go, oh, crisis averted. Understand, this would have absolutely stunned, shocked, and amazed those first followers of Jesus. You, you read the Bible and it's like, oh yeah, people are always calming storms. No, this, this, is, this, is, this would have been as strange to them as it would be if you or I in the boat. And it says, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They sense that they're in the presence of holiness. There's something else going on here. In fact, in Mark's account of the same story, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four accounts. In Mark's account, uh, he actually says the men were terrified after Jesus calmed the storm. Literally from the Greek, the original language, it would read this way. They feared a great fear. They feared a great fear. Like they had been afraid of the storm. But then all of a sudden, they realized that the storm wasn't, wasn't the most terrifying thing. It was, it was actually the one with whom they shared the boat. And, and he's using fear a bit playfully there because there's a fear of reverence and awe and then there's a fear of terror. It's like for them, they realized that perhaps they'd been fearing the wrong thing all along and they maybe started to glimpse what Jesus meant by faith. That faith, perhaps, that God is powerful, that God is in control ultimately that we maybe could trust him even in situations where we feel like we're about to lose everything. 
That's scene number two. The, um, the disciples never forgot that day on the lake. But as you continue to read the account of Jesus' life, what you see is that they continue to struggle with trust. So would we. But fortunately for them, the lessons that Jesus was teaching them about trust were not over. Time passes, and once again, the disciples find themselves on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. But this time, Jesus wasn't with them. Here's, here's the setup. It goes like this. The disciples went, oh, not that one. Let's try here. Um, immediately, Matthew tells us, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So once again, imagine they're in a village. Jesus is teaching and the disciples are watching the people and there's people getting healed and Jesus is ready to go and he makes the disciples get into the boat. And I love that detail Matthew tells us. And it's like, you know why he had to make them get into the boat? <laughs> Remember what happened last time we were in the boat, right? Um, and, and so Jesus makes them get into the boat. So it's the same guys on the same lake. It might've even been the same boat, only this time, Matthew tells us Jesus wasn't with them. Continues, he says, After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray by himself. And the picture that I showed you from that Mount Arbel, people argue that's probably the mountain he went up on. Um, but Jesus goes up on a mountain. He can kind of watch the lake. Uh, later that night, Jesus was there alone and the boat with the disciples in it was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. It was a frustrating night for the disciples, there's no storm, but there's a strong wind and they're rowing into the wind. And it's like they're expending a lot of calories and they're not getting anywhere. It reminds me a bit of spin class. Have you ever seen these classes? Yeah. Monday mornings, I'm at MVP and I do my class and next to me are these crazy people and some of you are here and if, it, if it's life-giving to you, God bless you. But, but you get on this bike and they blast music and you just go and go and go, but you never go anywhere, right? That's kind of the idea here. And, and after uh, many, many hours of this, they're exhausted and they're soaked and they're confused and they're like, where in the world is Jesus and why in the world isn't he with us, and, and here's what Matthew tells us. Shortly before dawn, as in they've been rowing all night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, like you do, right? And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, like you would be, right? It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. And, and uh, a bit of context, in the first century, Jewish people saw large bodies of water as gateways to the underworld. So the fact that they would believe they saw a ghost when a figure appeared on the water would be, you know, make sense in their culture. Uh, but again, they were seized with fear. I love the detail Mark gives us of this scene in his account. Check this out. Mark says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Oh, uh, nope, let's... Mm. Never you mind. That was supposed to be another joke, but it's okay. All right, so Jesus, yeah. So they're in fear. Jesus sees them. He looks at them, and all of a sudden he says, you've got to be kidding me, right? Jesus immediately said to them, you've got to be kidding me. I really should have picked some smarter guys, right? No, that, that's not what he said. Some of you are like, that's not in the Bible, right? That, no, that's my, that's, a, that's again, that's a joke. It's okay, right? Here's what he really says. So they're afraid. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. In other words, don't look at your situation and allow fear to rise. Look to me in the middle of your situation and trust me. Trust me. I need you to learn 
to trust me that it's going to be all right. I wasn't with you, but I was watching you. And one day I will not be with you as in on planet earth, but I will still be watching you. And sometimes I allow you to struggle in life's storms to teach you to trust me. And maybe if you came in here this morning and you have fear that is a present reality in your life, that's what you needed to hear. Sometimes God will allow you to struggle in life storms to teach you to trust. Because if we don't struggle, then our faith never costs us that much. And he wants a living, breathing relationship with you. I don't believe he causes pain in our lives. I believe he leverages pain in our lives. But the message to these disciples and the message to us today, simply this, you don't have to be afraid even when there is something to be afraid of because trust or faith or belief in God really is the antidote to fear. Now it's reassuring to me that the disciples didn't really get this even after this lesson. And if you said to me, when did they really, when did they really get this idea? It really, it was at the very end of the time Jesus spent with them on planet earth. At the end of his life, Jesus is arrested and his disciples run away in fear, in fear. And then they deny that they ever knew Jesus and they don't show up at his funeral and they're scared to death. And then a few weeks later, the strangest thing happens. A few weeks later, they hit the streets of Jerusalem and they are completely fearless, proclaiming what Jesus had accomplished. You say, well, what in the world happened? How did they become fearless? What allowed them to trust so completely that they would do whatever it took for the world to know about Jesus? And friends, they came face to face with a resurrected Jesus. And once Jesus rose from the grave, his first followers lost their fear of death. They placed their trust in the God who controls their ultimate destiny. And when you trust God with what happens after this life, which many of us in this room have, it unlocks potential to trust God with what happens in this life. And when you take that step to trust God with what happens in this life here and now, you take a step towards being fully alive. Friends, that is the life your heavenly father wants for you. And that is ultimately the life that you want for you. And that's why whatever fear you carried in with you this morning, Jesus invites you to trade your fears for faith or belief or trust in a God who loves you, who is with you, who isn't surprised by anything that happens to you and who wants to walk through it with you. Years ago, I had a series of conversations about fear and faith that I will never forget. I had a close friend uh, who shortly after her 70th birthday was diagnosed with cancer and for four years she battled heroically. Uh, but when it became clear that the end of her life was coming, she called in hospice, which is an incredible organization, and was assigned a pastor who was supposed to meet with her once a week. Um, and about two meetings after that happened, she called me and she said, yes, I need a favor. I need you to come meet with me once a week until I die. And I said, I would be honored. And then she continued because she's kind of spunky. And she said, yes, I was assigned a pastor. He was unacceptable. <laughs> And I started laughing. My wife and I were driving back from up north and, and she said, what's so funny? And I said, apparently I'm acceptable. I didn't know. I, have, I hope I don't disappoint her. So anyway, uh, over a period of about six weeks, on Wednesday afternoons after lunch, I would go over and we would sit around her kitchen table and talk. 
And it was some of the most unfiltered, wondrous conversations I've ever been a part of. When you know you're dying, the filters fall off, by the way, right? And, and so we discussed life and God and heaven and faith and regret and fear and what matters most. And I remember about a week before she died, she was sitting there and, and she said, is there anything you'd like to ask me? And I said, yeah. I said, you're so at peace with the idea of death. Like, fearless with death. And I said, how did you get there? Not just conceptually, but you're there, like emotional space. And without missing a beat, she smiled. And she said, you know what? Years ago, I decided that once I had done everything that I knew to do, I would just trust God with the rest. Once I had done everything that I knew to do financially, I'd trust God with the rest. Once I do everything that I knew to do relationally, I'd trust God with the rest. With regards to my marriage, with regards to my business, I, she said, I just realized I was spending so much energy trying to control things that I couldn't control. And along with that inability to control, that for me was the fear. So she said, I just, I just surrendered. I just said, God, you can have it, right? And I don't want to be negligent. I'll do everything that I know to do, but I, I just, I want your peace to invade my life in a very, very real way. And this perspective allowed her to walk a path in a, and struggle and battle with cancer. And it was so heroic because she was able to do it fearlessly. Her faith had literally become an antidote to the fears of this life. Not perfectly, but she carried a peace that was so, so captivating. So as, as we close, I just got to ask you a question. What do you fear most? Maybe, maybe it's something relational for you. Maybe it's the loss of a marriage or a wayward teen. For some of you, it might be financial. You're really like, I'm not sure where the provision will come from. For others, it, it might be something physical. You have a struggle with your health or someone you love has a struggle with their health and the fear is real. And if you're honest, this morning, that's your storm. That's the place in your life that Jesus seems like he's sleeping. And whatever that is, I, I wanna just say, speak three words to you and they're the words I think Jesus would speak to you as well. I think he would look at you in your individual situation and say, do not fear. You don't have to be afraid. God has things under control. This is your father's world. He cares about things no one cares about and he cares deeply for you. And then he might even say, you know, once you've done everything you know to do, just trust God with the rest. Allow his peace to invade your storm. And as you do, not only will your faith come to life, but you take a step towards being fully alive. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for friends who walked in and there is a real and present danger in their life and, and fear is crippling. And I pray that something in the words of your son would, would burn through that fog that would ignite hope. 
maybe not that the situation causing the fear would instantly be cleared up, but, but that you can be trusted, that we can choose to trust you. And in doing so, experience a peace that passes understanding. And so I pray that that, that peace would invade us all that we would lean away from fear and towards faith. And as we do, I pray that our relationship with you would, would grow in richness and in color and we might even be a bit more what you had in mind when you created us. So we thank you. We bless you. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part three of Fully Alive.